Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, and we are, as you know, looking at what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ. Jesus had a lot to say about it, and, and what he said, as we've already seen, is radical. The standard for discipleship is radical. We've seen already that a true disciple of Christ is known for loving Christ. That's what they're mostly known for. They're known for loving Christ, even if it costs them other relationships that are precious to them. You remember Jesus had said, look, if you are going to follow me as a true disciple, no other love can rival your love for me. In fact, by comparison, it would look like the opposite. And that's why he says those shocking words in verse 26 of this chapter, if you come to me, you and you don't hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, or even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. So true disciples of Christ, Jesus says, are always striving to love Christ above any other affection. Moreover, true disciples are not superficial in how they come. You know, it's people attaching themselves to Jesus all the time, and yet when they come, they, they can't come superficially. They have to come for the right reasons, in the right way, on the Lord's terms. They must come by faith alone, not by anything you bring, and it must be by repentance. We, we have just lost our sense of the gospel when we have taken out of it the concept of repentance. And the reason that we backed out of the concept of repentance is because we do not want to imagine something we're repenting of. We don't want to imagine that there is sin that we have to confess before God that says, I am worthy of condemnation. We don't want to say that. And so the gospel has been stripped of that, and we've allowed people to attach themselves to Jesus as disciples without coming on His terms. And so He says, I don't want you to come superficially. Verse 27, if you don't carry your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. That is to say, you die to self-trust. I read it in Philippians 3. We put no confidence in the flesh. A true Christian puts no trust in anything earthly, anything they've done, anything that would come from intrinsic resources. A true Christian glories alone in Christ Jesus. That is how Jesus says you must come. It's not superficial. You've run the to Christ in repentance. You understand that following the Lord means you're bought with a price. And as 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, you're not your own. And so everything gets laid on the altar in the life of a true disciple. You may not have learned how to give it all up yet. You may be striving to become better at having no rival allegiances that, that would come against Christ. But this is the heart of a true disciple. All of it goes on the altar in service to the Lord. That is the sign of a true follower. So we're His. For Him to do with what He pleases. He is our Master. And so when He saves His people and He intends to bring us into His service, He then begins to mold us and shape our lives in such a way that we have the greatest influence. That's His purpose. If He didn't want us to be used in the, in the work, if He wasn't generously handing us this great task, then we would just go home and be with Him now. But from here till you meet the Lord, you've been put into His service, and He wants to mold and shape you for maximum influence. Maximum influence. 
In fact, Jesus would say in his very first sermon, you're the light of the world. I put you in the light. I saved you. I put you into service to shine forth. And you're to do it in such a way that men see the growth in your life, the the, uh, change in your life, the transformation from the inside out, and that they may begin to become gripped like you were about their sin, and they would in, in, in the end glorify God who is in heaven. That is why we're here. I'm not building the church. Jesus is building the church. He saved me and put me into his service in the work of his church, just like he did you. He's building it. He gives us a task. From now till we meet Christ, we go into the world to make disciples, and we are to be useful to the master, Paul told Timothy, prepared for every kind of good work, useful to the master. He's our master. We're, we're to be useful to him. We're to be effective. But even though he has saved us and put us into service, there is also the sobering reality that we can live in such a way that we lose that influence. We can live in such a way that our effectiveness is eroded. And Jesus warns the crowd who professes to be his disciples that they must be mindful about the call to true discipleship. The call to true discipleship is all or nothing. It is not superficial, and it's to have long-term impact, long-term fruit that doesn't fade, that doesn't go away, that doesn't cause doubts about where you're at. You're to advance, as Paul said. Forget what lies behind. Reach forward. Stretch forward. Like the old ancient athlete pressing toward the tape, you're to reach for that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You are to be effective. You're not a sideliner. You don't get to walk off the track in the relay. You take the baton, you carry it your leg. You're to be effective, influential, impacting, and anything that is a part of our life that would take away from that, Jesus wants to address with this crowd. Now, the Lord should be able to use us. Just started thinking about ways that we should be able to be used. First of all, a moral conscience in our culture, we, we ought to be. Christians ought to be a moral conscience. We shouldn't be laughed at. We should be mocked, perhaps, by those who don't believe what we believe. Mocked for our beliefs is one thing. Mocked for our lifestyle is another. We should be a moral voice in the conscience of the culture, whether they respond to it or not. We are to speak with conviction to the conscience of the culture about things that really matter, things of eternal value. When life and death is at stake, when someone's soul matters, when eternal things are on the line, Christians are a voice to the moral conscience of the culture, despite how they might respond. That means then we're also to be a a resource of truth and, and not confusing to people. We're to be a resource of truth. When they need answers, we can give life and death answers. We can speak to the things of eternity, life, death, the past, the present, the future, sin, redemption, the things that really matter, a human being's relationship to God, creation, life itself, meaning. Christians can speak to all those things. We ought to be speaking the truth in that way, to have an influence. Moreover, we ought to model virtue. We ought to model virtue in our lives, in the culture. 
In our sphere of influence, we ought to be the, the one that's sort of like a, a reference point for people, kind of calls people up short. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. We ought to be those who are against the, the boastful pride of life in the culture. We ought to model a humble disposition. We ought to be the opposite of selfish ambition and stepping on others to get what we want. That is to say, then, we are to be lovers of souls. We ought to love people in the sense that we, we think they matter. People matter. Their soul matters. And when Christ comes, it will matter most. We also ought to be givers, not consumers. We ought to be giving our time and our talent and our resources, known as generous people, known as people who, who of course, use the resources to take care of family and, and the dynamics that we have to work in and the common, wonderful grace of God. But, but we ought to be givers, not consumers, generous people, gracious people, grateful people, people who don't have a clutch on the things of this life, Colossians 3 says. We ought to be overall a wholesome influence. We ought to be a source of moral strength and encouragement. Look, when people are weak and traumatized by life, we ought to come alongside and be the ones who influence that whole dynamic with strength and encouragement. We know our God. We can give them a new narrative. We can give them hope that they don't have. We also ought to be a deterrent to evil. Look, when when evil is lurking and there's a Christian around, there, there ought to be a check against that, that evil that is being devised. The Christian ought to blunt that environment. The Christian ought to put a stop to that environment by their very presence. We are to be deterrents to those things that offend God, not an encouragement of it. And ultimately, we, we ought to be a channel to Christ. We ought to be a, a channel that leads to Christ. Everything is about Him. It's not about us having a re reputation of being better than people or, or being superior religiously. It is ultimately about pointing people to the same Savior that saved us. Now listen, that is what Jesus is doing here when He finishes this section that He's been speaking to the crowd about, about discipleship. He finishes it with this epigram. That's what He's doing. Notice what he says in verse 34. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned or literally salted again or restored? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus essentially tags on the end of this discussion of discipleship this very reality that we are made as disciples for maximum influence and impact. Maximum influence and impact. That's why he says salt is good. Notice the beginning of verse 34. He says, therefore. So he is saying this right on the heels of what he said in verse 33. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I told you last week, that is a phrase that basically means disown everything. It all belongs to God. Whatever you want to do with it and with me, it all belongs to you. It's all laid on the altar. He's not talking about socialism. He's not talking about going home and putting it all out front as a yard sale or putting it all on eBay. He is saying, look, 
it belongs to him. You should not hold on to it as if you own it in this life. He owns you. He can do with it as he pleases. If you want to be Christ's disciple, you are, it's given up. They're all, they're all on the altar. You don't want to hold on to any of it at the expense of being used by Christ. That's his point. And then notice, therefore, salt is good. Sometimes you may, have, uh, you may have studied this text before or heard messages on it before. And when, you, when you read about Jesus referring here to salt, you might assume that it's sort of the culinary arts, you know, the ordinary use of salt, which is used as a seasoning. Maybe that's the analogy that comes to your mind. And when Jesus used salt as an analogy in his first sermon, remember Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, it's easy from that text, because there's nothing to specify, it's easy to assume that he's talking about the salt we use in our everyday food to spice it up, make it flavorful and not dull. And, and it may be that there are ways that that might have been in the minds of some, as some commentaries have said, where Christians are viewed as, by an analogy, sort of flavoring life with the seasoning of Christianity, etc. But in this text, you have a much more specific use that gives us an understanding of why Jesus refers to salt. It was always sort of the reference in the Old Testament when salt was referred to. It had some of these same qualities that Jesus refers to here. In this text, it's clearer that he wants us to compare ourselves not to the sort of the culinary use of this in the analogy, but the agricultural use of salt, particularly in the ancient world. We know that from verse 35. If salt loses its effectiveness, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. That tells us then that he's dealing here in the analogy with an agricultural theme. So having just dealt with the cost of discipleship, not one of you can be my disciple who doesn't give up all that he has, Jesus now says, therefore, here's how I want you to think about the ongoing fruit that I'm after for a genuine disciple. Salt is good. In what sense? Well, Jesus tells us something about salt when it isn't good. Notice verse 35. It's useless. That is a term, by the way, that's, that essentially can be translated, it isn't fit for its original purpose. So in other words, it's lost its effectiveness. Salt is good when it remains fit for its purpose. And since he has in mind the agricultural use of it in the ancient world, then the crowd would have listened to this and understood the analogy immediately. They knew salt in the ancient world, in agriculture, had an influence. Now, it did two things, and we'll just, I chased this around this week, all kinds of fun things to, to read about, but essentially you could boil it down to two things in the analogy that would have immediately come to mind as referred to in verse 35. First of all, it was a stimulus for growth or life and growth. According to sort of the, the scientists in soil chemistry, if you will, some of the articles were quite boring, but very interesting. Salt has been, of course, a major method for fertilizing soil for centuries. And, and one, one professor writing for the Journal of Biblical Archaeology, which, by the way, he was the former head of the soils department at West Virginia University. They have a soils department. You're majoring in dirt. Wow, tell that to your parents. Yeah, I picked dirt for my major. But he said in, in, uh, in his studies in ancient times, not too dissimilar from today. They had three kinds of, of salt that was used, rock salt, and then the salt that was excavated from 
the Dead Sea, and then salt pits, which, by the way, are referred to by the prophets in the Old Testament, Zephaniah most notably. But unlike modern table salt, which is your basic sodium chloride, as all you culinary experts know, the salts in Jesus' day were a mixture of several things very, very important to, to establishing growth. There was the sodium chloride, there was magnesium and potassium, and then gypsum. Uh, it's interesting, the, the calcium sulfate, which we call gypsum, that's an interesting thing that just brings to my mind a friend of mine named George Jackson. George Jackson uh, owns all kinds of orchards in the San Joaquin Valley, and he produces a massive percentage of produce for this country, and he's, he's a dear friend. But he, he um, found out that the, in the ancient world, they would use that, that this calcium sulfate, that gypsum, in the soil because of the way that it acts uh, in, in their salt for creating life and growth or increasing their productivity. So he would go around to the construction sites in, in uh, the area around his crops. He would collect all the old wallboard, all the plasterboard, and he would grind it up because it had gypsum in it, and he'd put it in the soil and increased his productivity by a huge percentage, kind of revitalized some of the industry there. Uh, the, the ancient salts were extremely stout, they wouldn't lose their effectiveness by disintegration over time. But if they did, if they lost their effectiveness, it was that particular ingredient, the gypsum in it, that if it was exposed to any kind of element outside of that, it would disintegrate and lose its effectiveness. So in the analogy, Jesus is saying, look, I don't want a disciple of mine to lose their ability to influence life and growth, spiritual life and growth most notably. I want you to be a stimulus for life and growth. We are supposed to be an influence for life and growth, listen, in places where growth isn't happening. So that's why God puts you where he puts you. He puts you in places where you're going to be exposed to areas that need gospel truth, that need the softening of the soil, that need the seed of the gospel, and you're placed there to do just that. You're to stimulate growth. You're, he's going to put you where there's no hope. He's going to put you in a place where people grieve with no hope. Sometimes it might be a family funeral, and you've got people there that absolutely have no hope because they have no gospel. Guess why you're placed there? To stimulate life and growth with regard to the hope of the gospel. Sometimes it's going to be just sheer encouragement with a coworker or a friend or someone you met on the street or a neighbor or someone in your family you've had a friendship with uh, or an ongoing dialogue with as a family member for years, and they don't have any way to see life from an encouraging standpoint because they have no answer for their questions. You're going to bring answers in their discouragement. You're going to bring answers that mean something. And in continually bringing those answers, you're continually going back and planting seed in the soil and working in the soil to strengthen it for life and growth. You're going to be put in places where there's no moral standard, and you become the moral standard to stimulate life and growth, even if the reaction is violent. You're going to be placed in places where life's dilemmas are too great for people. They don't have answers to those big dilemma questions, and you're going to be asked those questions, and you're going to be a source for them. You'll be placed in places where there's no sober-mindedness, where everything is reckless, 
where it's undisciplined thinking, it's worldly thinking, it's disastrous thinking, it's kill or be killed, step on everybody, the survival of the fittest. It's the lack of sober-mindedness about human existence, and you're going to be the influence in that, in that arena for life and growth. You're going to bring sober-mindedness. You're going to bring wisdom where there's only folly. You're going to bring discipline where there's only carelessness. God puts you in places to bring strength of character where nobody has any conviction by which they are living for something greater than themselves. So in that sense, you're a stimulus for growth, Jesus says. And he says, I want my true disciples to be those that bring about a greater and greater influence for growth. Now notice he says... He mentions the soil here, but he also mentions the compost heap, the manure pile, the dunghill in some of your translations. Everybody in ancient agriculture as well as today knows that, that if, you, if you create a compost heap, it becomes a fertilizer for your garden. When I was a kid, that's exactly what my father taught us to do. We, we took all of the manure that we could find from the dogs and from the animals, and we put it in this pile, and we put old leaves on there, and we let... We, we put a tarp over it and let the sun sort of bake it, you know? What kind of a concoction do you have there? It's nasty under there, but there it is under the tarp. And when you plant in your garden, which we, we did, we had a vegetable garden, we would go over there as boys and get a shovel of that compost and take it over there and put it in there. That We were making fertilizer. Here's the problem. If you don't have some way to keep the fertilizer from being exposed to the elements, it begins to have a process of fermentation, and it loses its fertilizing ability. It loses its ability to take the nutrients and send them down into the soil. So in the ancient world, what they would do to protect it when they couldn't get it out to the field immediately but made compost piles of it, they put salt all over the top of it. Salt was a preservative of the vital nutrients, and it kept the manure from becoming fermented. It has an antiseptic and preservative quality about it. Not only do we know that from the fact that you take a piece of meat and, and to keep it from getting bacterial, you put salt on it to preserve it from rotting, it also has similar qualities in the agricultural world, and it was common knowledge that they would strengthen fertilizer with it. One 19th century reference volume noted that salt is applicable in all these cases the, this fermented compost cannot be carted at once to the land, so they cover the heap with salt. It was a cheap and effective means of stopping that fermenting process and th that would ruin their fertilizer. And of course, the ancient Hebrews weren't the only ones that knew this. Some of the research says that the, the Chinese and the Romans used it in arid climates to do a whole bunch of other things. And I found it kind of interesting by analogy to the, to the spiritual use of this that Jesus is talking about here. Um, they used salt to help soil re-moisturize. In other words, it retained moisture and made it more pliable. That's an interesting way to look at the Christian life. Your life is to make the soil softer if God can use you as an instrument to soften them. God may harden certain soil, but when He wants to soften it, the question is, are you the instrument God uses? Are you the one that, that retains the softness of the soil by getting into that person's life and continually loving them and bringing truth to them and ministering to them and serving relentlessly over time so that that soil just gets 
to, to maintain some softness to the seed of the gospel. Is that true? Or are you the opposite? Do you become an instrument by which that soil hardens, not by the truth you speak, but by the sin you live? In the ancient world, Saul, Saul did more than that. It not only made the hard soil easier to till, but it helped destroy the surface weeds and strengthen the deep-rooted plants and grasses. So, by analogy, perhaps it came to someone's mind in the crowd that their life as a disciple of Christ was to help remove the, the things that don't belong, the, the weeds that choke out the life of the gospel. You know, it's like Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Are you the kind of disciple that runs the race with endurance and gets rid of all the excess baggage hanging off your life? Listen, this was part of the analogy of the salt, to destroy surface weeds. I found that quite practical. It also increased the productivity of their cattle because if you put salt on the, in the soil, it made the grass sweeter and made the cattle uh, like the grass more and increased their grazing and therefore milk production. Another fascinating way to look at the analogy. They made things more readily productive. Depending on the type of soil, it used to keep rust from the wheat and blight from the potatoes, so it protected crops. Again, a preservative sort of element. And then when rain took salt deeper into the soil, the chemical reaction brought out the vital nutrients. So there you have it. When God puts you somewhere where there needs to be vital nutrients of the gospel coming forth out of your life, are you the one that he can take deep into the soil of that situation and bring about and raise up more vital nutrients to the soil so that there's greater nourishment for the truth. We're made for maximum influence, beloved. The influence of our life is to be a stimulus for life and growth and a preservative of vital nutrients. What are you living like if that's what God made us to do? Now, he also then talks about not just the influence of the salt, but the impairing of the salt. Verse 34, if the salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting terminology here. Jesus uses the word for foolish. If the salt becomes foolish, and the, the way it's being used here is useless, futile. It no longer, I mean, it's useless to put it on there. It's lost its effectiveness is essentially what he's saying. Even if it loses its effectiveness, then the point is with what will it be made effective again? Well, nothing. That is the point. Once salt stops being salt, it's no longer going to do what it's made to do. Once you as a Christian lose the effectiveness of your ability to influence then we have to ask the question, where are you going to be made effective again? Well, it has to be the grace of God chastening your life, you coming to God and saying, Lord, make me effective again. Help me remove these things that have taken away my effectiveness. I mean, it's a really stark way of saying it here. Jesus almost implies that once you lose your effectiveness, you're done. You cannot be my disciple. Now, clearly that's not true of genuine Christians. We can run to God's mercy and appeal to His grace and become more faithful and strong than we were in the past. But it is a sobering way of saying it when He says, if you've lost your saltiness, if you've become tasteless, that's a warning. You don't want to be an apostate. 
You don't want to be one who has no impact. And we start wondering where you're at spiritually. You ever been like that with somebody? Where are you at spiritually? I mean, you, you have so much of this in your life and so much baggage over here in your life and so much refusal to deal with this in your life. And there isn't, doesn't seem to be any love that, that is less of a rival to Christ. Every love in your life rivals Christ. Every allegiance in your life rivals Christ. You don't seem to be interested much in Christ at all. Where are you at? This is an important sort of sobering way that Jesus puts it here. So let's talk about how it loses its effectiveness. How does a Christian lose their influence? Well, it's just looking at it initially. Notice what Jesus said back in verse 26. If other relationships come before your love for Him, so now we know other loves come before Christ and cause us to compromise. So just in general, before we get practical and specific, just think about that. Have you become tasteless or have you lost your influence as a Christian because other loves constantly push you to compromise your love for Christ, whatever they may be, family relationships, friends, uh, career paths, whatever it might be. How about carrying your own cross, verse 27? That is to say, die to self. Are there other allegiances in your life that come before carrying your cross for Christ so that you just you draw a line in the sand several places? No, Lord, I will not do that. No, Lord, I will not go there. No, Lord, I cannot give you that area of my life. No, Lord, I, I will not have you own that area. I want it. It's mine. It's my security. It's my comfort. I can't believe you'd even want to take that away from me. Perhaps you've lost some influence by, by having other allegiances, which Jesus referred to, or even that last one when he talks about calculating the building of a building or, or meeting a king that, that you know might be able to overpower you. These are other things we trust in. In other words, you're not carefully considering the cost of discipleship. Could it be that you do have a trust in other things? You have a misplaced dependence in key areas that keeps you from greater influence. Salt loses its effectiveness first, first by dilution. Dilution. It loses its, its gypsum, its calcium sulfate. It no longer can stimulate growth because the agent in the salt, which makes it effective, gets diluted. Why? Because it's mixed with foreign elements that have no compatibility with the compounds in the salt. So has your life brought in foreign elements that have no compatibility with Christ? This is the essence of Hebrews 12. If you want to run the race with endurance, you have to lay aside the excess, the things that easily entangle, and the baggage in your life. Look, anything that isn't compatible with that which makes for godliness and Christian living, that's got to go because you're diluting the change agent, the effectiveness of your life, Jesus says. And then degradation, degradation, or we might say erosion, the slow erosion or breakdown of the antiseptic quality of your life, the slow erosion of the preservative nature of your life. Do you preserve godliness and, and keep the world back? Do you prevent the world from overpowering your sphere of influence because you are a check and balance? You're a moral stopgap. 
Is there a breakdown in your life of that preservative quality so that you do not protect vital nutrients, you waste vital biblical nutrients for stimulating growth? It got eroded over time because it was exposed to elements that have a greater influence. Did your biblical convictions get eroded because you've exposed your life to things that have overpowered you and your flesh has been dominated by? That's how the salt gets impaired. That's how your effectiveness gets impaired, by by mixing with things that aren't compatible and the slow erosion by things that have a greater influence. We have a tendency then to destabilize in our influence. We're made for maximum influence, but we have a tendency to destabilize in all those ways that Jesus mentioned earlier. But now let's go back to the list I gave you at the beginning. What kind of influence are we supposed to have? And let's just take this analogy now and apply it to that. What about your moral voice in the culture? What about the way that Christians are to be the conscience of the culture? They have no conscience. You can't appeal to their conscience with Scripture. You have to just speak it. They won't be appealed to until they see their need for Christ. But we are to be the moral conscience in the culture in two ways. One, we demonstrate our submission to the sovereignty of God. We submit to those God-ordained governing authorities, and yet at the same time, we speak our conviction in those same contexts. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, look, I believe it, therefore it comes out of my mouth. I speak it. I may not speak it, be able to speak it in every environment, but when I have opportunity, I, I, I have courage because I have conviction. I believe it, therefore I speak it. And so Christians are to speak about the issues which make for stable life in our culture. We speak those things that make for stable families and stable societies. We speak truth. And so have you destabilized in your influence because you cower in fear or you don't know what to say. You haven't thought through what to say. You remember in that list, we're to be a resource of divine truth. Can you open the Scriptures to people? Can you open the truth to people? Have you applied principles so consistently that they're on your mind when that moment comes and you're, a, you're an influence rather than a destabilized sort of weakness? Is it true? Do you know enough that you can put that forth, speak the truth in love? You're a resource. You know how it is. You go through some trauma in your life and somebody tells you about some passage in Scripture and maybe you blow the dust off your Bible and you go to that passage and suddenly the Lord uses that passage to grip your heart and mind and that passage is there. It's embedded. It's It's committed to your heart. It's committed to your convictions, let alone your memory. It's there because you've worn it out. You've wept over it. You've thanked the Lord for it. It has ministered to you, renewed you, encouraged you, lifted you up. And now the next person you talk to, that passage, you have a working knowledge of it. Is it true that that's how it is for you in the Scriptures? Is it just one passage, or is it that you have an increasing, growing knowledge of God's Word such that these passages are becoming meaningful to your life, and you can open the Word in a culture around you and stimulate growth, can stimulate it? 
You're to be a source of divine truth in the moral conscience of the culture. You're also supposed to be a model of virtue, a model of virtue that they may see your good works. I love John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Man, do you destabilize your influence because when the world looks at you as a Christian, they don't hear that you love people. They don't see that you love others. They actually see the opposite. You're angry all the time, agitated, irritated, bitter. You speak vitriol toward people. You attack them. You slander them. You complain all the time. Is this what people see? Because that's a destabilizing of your influence. You're to be a model of virtue so that all men will know, hey, that guy is a disciple of Jesus. What we read in the Bible is what we hear from that person. How about a humble disposition? I'll tell you, I I don't know how in the world we are ever going to be salt and stimulate growth and preserve the nutrients needed for gospel growth with the way that we love selfish ambition and the boastful pride of life. And I'm not talking about our culture. I'm talking about the church. The church. God gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the proud, and evangelicals seem to not care about that at all. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, didn't consider those things something to be clutched, but for our sake, he humbled himself. The Lord of glory humbled himself. Listen, if if you hate your brother, 1 John says, how does the love of God dwell in you? If you're bitter, if you have strife in your heart, if you're full of rancor and unforgiveness, you're destabilizing your influence. You're diluting it. You're degrading its nutrients. You're stripping yourself of the ability to be used by God in that salt way. You're becoming tasteless. Are you a lover of souls? We're to love our neighbors as ourselves, second greatest commandment. Are you a lover of souls? When people get around you, do they just know? And you, what you care about most is that when they cross that threshold, they're going to be in eternity. Or does it not really matter much anymore to you? I mean, you're in Christ. You, you have eternity. We're, we're going to sing about it tonight. Just, Lord, come, open the gates, come in, start to reign. We're going to be there with you. And and there is that wonderful reality that we're going to reign with Christ. But, but when people are around you, do you preserve the nutrients for gospel advance? Do you stimulate life and growth? Because people know you love souls. That's what really matters to you. You don't trash people to get your own satisfaction. Souls really matter because one day we're going to stand before Christ. How can it be that someone's going to be standing there outside of Christ because you didn't love them enough to care about their soul and God put them in your sphere of influence and you weren't light and you weren't salt. You got diluted. You got degraded. You eroded your effectiveness. What about being a consumer rather than a giver? 
What are you known for in your sphere of influence? Are you salt and light in the sense that you will, you will sacrifice your time for people? Sacrifice your resources? You don't have to hang on to it here. Sure, you make a living. Sure, you survive and enjoy the great things that God gives us. But are you known for, for not clutching it? But your fingers are peeled away from it because there's nothing about this earth that you're clutching and holding on to. You, you could let it go today. If God wants to take it all, He can have it. Use it, use it for gospel influence, whatever it may be. Are you known for being a giver rather than a consumer? What about moral strength and encouragement? Are you the one that walks into the room when people have been traumatized and the first thing that you're doing is you're beginning to pray for faith, that everyone would would turn to God and, and be strengthened and encouraged in their faith? Or are you the one with the weakest faith in the room? You can't remember the last time when a trauma happened that you actually believed God first. Listen, you're to be a source of moral strength and encouragement. That's how God uses our saltiness to preserve and stimulate growth. When you're the one person in the room, not that you don't ever weep, not that you aren't ever on thin ice, not that you aren't ever struggling, but you're the one that turns to the Word. You're the one that brings moral strength and encouragement. You're the one whose faith is growing, and God can use it then to strengthen somebody else. Look, if you're, if you're complaining against God all the time, if you're grumbling and disputing with God's plan all the time, how can you then be salty and effective as a stimulant? How about a deterrent to evil? You know, some Christians live so close to the edge, I wonder if they've ever read Genesis 18 in Sodom and Gomorrah And I wonder if they've ever known that Abraham warned Lot not to build his house near the wall of that city. Abraham, his uncle, was way off, way off. He could see it. There was commerce going back and forth between the estates, between the city and his estate, but he wasn't anywhere near it. Lot, on the other hand, built right next to it. You know what? He started doing commerce with it, and then he would go in the city and have business meetings. Pretty soon, he was handing his kids to people from the city, pagans. He's about ready to hand his daughters there in marriage. Lost sight of it. His conscience was tormented day and night, Peter says, but he had lived close to it. Some Christians live so close to the things of the world, so on the edge, if not through the porous uh, edge, uh, fringe of the world, and sooner or later they're, they're tracking completely with it. They're diluting their effectiveness. They're eroding their gospel witness. The nutrients aren't going to survive. They're not going to stimulate growth. Pretty soon it will get the better of them, and they will, they'll lose their influence. You're not to be that. As salt, a true disciple of Christ is to deter those things, to be a curb to those things, and therefore a channel to Christ. You know, I admire Andrew, Peter's brother. You know, he, he was always, you know, it was Peter who was the spokesperson because Peter couldn't keep his mouth quiet. Andrew was the quiet one, but it always says in the Gospels that Andrew was bringing people to the Messiah. <laughs> hey, I don't know what to say about him. I just want you to come meet him. <laughs> I, I'm not like my brother Peter. I can't articulate all this that Jesus is saying, but I want you to come. I found the Messiah. You need to come. I, I like that. He's always... A channel to Christ. The salt of Andrew's life in that way was precious. It was preserving. It was stimulating. 
At times, beloved, we undermine the power to stimulate growth by, by being the opposite of what we're called to be. And then we undermine the power to preserve because we don't keep ourselves unstained by the world. It's interesting how the, the social gospel movement has taken James 1.27, you know, pure and undefiled religion, visit orphans and widows. And they just latch on to that. And it is true. The heart of true spirituality is the heart of God, compassion for those that have a need. Jesus proved that in the gospel when He came to meet our need on the cross. That's the essence of pure and undefiled spirituality, when you will meet someone else's need at your expense. That's the whole point of that first section of James 1.27. But we almost always ignore the second half, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Sometimes we lose our power to preserve because we're mixing it with foreign elements and we're exposing our life to things that stain the Christian. 2 Corinthians 7.1, we're to keep ourselves from all defilement of flesh. Titus 2, 11 to 14, the grace of God which has come and, and launched the gospel to all men teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to deny all ungodliness and worldly lust and to live righteously and soberly in this age. In 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul said, Look, Timothy, abstain from wickedness, and you'll be useful to the Master. So we're not to undermine the power to, to stimulate growth, and we're not to undermine the power to preserve from ruin. Notice he says, if you become useless then you have to be thrown out. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? If you in the crowd are understanding this with ears of faith, then you'll know the impact of this analogy. You'll know it. You'll know the overall lesson. Don't ever lose your sodium. <laughs> Don't tweet that. <laughs> Oh, so much to think about. Let's bow together.